There's something surreal about jumping out of airplanes from anywhere from 12,000 to 25,000 feet. And the next thing I know, I'm seeing high caliber weapons leveled at us. In Alaska, we can see 50 below zero easily. That's when I walked into the recruiting office. I have to leave DC now and I have to become something because if not, I'm gonna be another statistic. Real soldiers, real stories. Brought to you by armychap.com. Well, hello again to our listeners. Thanks for joining us again to listen to the individual stories of our service members on the Soldier Stories podcast. I'm your host, Chaplain David Wright. If you haven't already, please subscribe or leave a rating or review because that will help more people find this free resource. This is a personal podcast and is not endorsed by or connected to the U.S. Army or the government in any way. So I started doing these podcast interviews when I was stationed in Korea just as a way to share some of the stories of our service members. Now at the time of this recording, I've been stationed in Alaska for nearly a year and I've been looking forward to having this conversation with one of my friends who is the officer in charge of our medical section. So let's get into it. Please introduce yourself, uh, give us uh, a little short background on your career experienced so far, and then we'll get into the story that you have for us today. Uh, my name is Terry D'Angelo. I am a lieutenant. Uh, my uh, current role is a medical operations officer. Uh, my history goes uh, for 13 years in military service. I started off as a 68 Whiskey or a combat medic. I started off in 275 Ranger Regiment, which is a Special Operations Elite Infantry Unit. Did five years in 275, uh, moved over for uh, five years to Forcecom or regular army where I did time in Korea. I did time at Fort Lewis as well for three years and then I commissioned over as an officer at my 11th year and I've been doing uh, my current role as the medical operations officer for two years now um, where I am very gainfully employed. So yeah a couple things already so mm. uh, you were enlisted for over 10 years. Yes sir. Were you a combat medic for those for the entirety of, of those years? Yeah, I was a uh, combat medic for the 10 years. I In that time, I did three deployments to Afghanistan uh, with the regiment. I didn't do any on regular army. Um, and towards that topic of deployments, I did one in Iraq as an officer. Before you tell your story, mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about what you do as a uh, overseeing the our medical section here at our, our unit. So my job is to put the right people in the right spot on the medical terms. Uh, so I oversee a, a physician and a, a physician's assistant. I oversee 31 combat medics. And my job again is just to put them in the right spot. I make sure that they're doing uh, the right medicine at the right time and know when to move that patient from point of injury. So where someone was shot uh, on the battlefield and learn that progression from where to treat there and how to treat in a covered situation to moving that patient to a larger or casualty collection point and then getting them to the providers who can do more work which then moves on to where there are even more providers and higher levels of care that have more resources and that is my whole job is moving the right people to the right spot and i think that brings up a good point i mean people have seen movies like black hawk down saving private ryan where you have a, a casualty situation and they're moving casualties to the, what we call the CCP, the mm -hmm. casualty collection point. 
And so you have training on that, your medics have training on that, and then the idea, I think, is to stabilize them where you are, even on the battlefield, which is something historically we haven't always done, no. uh, but in modern day, uh, your medics can stabilize them a lot better on the battlefield before getting them to a higher level of care. And the invention of uh, TCCC, or tactical, uh, tactical combat care, has really increased our survivability rate for numbers in Vietnam, we were having people who are shot in the arm or the leg, a 90% death rate. Um, that has turned around to be somewhere around 10%. And yeah, we train on stabilizing. So the whole job is to get a patient from point of injury stabilized to a surgeon with an anesthetist who can actually stop the pro or who can actually fix the problem. And, and that's really what we're doing. And so everything we do is just a stopgap to save time. Um, because I can't put arteries back together. I can't put uh, a lung back together. I, I can't patch any of that, and none of my guys can, and to include the providers. Um, that it takes a general surgeon with all the proper resources, and that's at least three hours away on a good day. And that brings up a good point. Are you a doctor? I'm not. So that might be a misconception, like, oh, you're the leader of the medical section, you must be a doctor, but that's not how this works. No, uh, normally a medical operations officer knows nothing of how to treat. They usually play a lot of catch up, and so I am blessed with the previous knowledge of 10 years and being a special operations trained medic of what these guys do, and I have a good understanding of that, so I'm not playing that catch up role, but a medical operations officer does not understand medicine. Thanks for sharing with us about some of your background and mm -hmm. even some of the practical uh, things that came out of that. So what story do you have for us today? And uh, let's talk about that next. So my story would be over Ranger School. Um, it is my greatest achievement and my hardest thing that I've ever done. It took me two attempts. I spent six months twice trying to achieve this badge. And what Ranger School is, is a leadership school. Um, you should also come in with a basic understanding of infantry tactics. It's for leadership. Uh, and rank is immaterial at that point, which proves hard for both parties. Uh, you'll have specialists like I was uh, entering, having to lead captains or majors. And you're not supposed to know each other's ranks, but it becomes very apparent what rank everyone is because there's some things that we are good at versus others. One of the ways to apply artificial stress is lack of sleep and lack of food. And so I would average on training days, two to four hours of sleep. And on operation days, when we went to the field, I operated on 15 to 45 minutes. So trying to lead people when no one really wants to be led because all I want is either to sleep or to get, eat food. And I was very sleepy. So telling a captain or a major, hey, I need you to be 15 feet to your right because that's a better piece of cover when all he wants to do is just lay there for the next 45 minutes until the operation kicks off can be very daunting. Can you talk about like the phases like how is ranger school structured from start to finish? How so long is it? It's supposed to be 63 days if you do not recycle and what recycling is is simply failing to meet the standard and getting another opportunity to restart that particular phase that you're in first three days was called hell week um, it's only three days but it feels like a week I bet um, and then it goes the first phase is Derby imagine that as your crawl phase you work a lot of squad operations lower level stuff but you're just kind of getting the feel you get the basic training how this is supposed to look and what the instructors are looking for then it's mountain phase uh, where you go to Delano Georgia 
and you go up the Tennessee Valley Divide um, and you work your first platoon operations. And then the third phase is Florida phase, which is in Eglin Air Force Base. And you, it's almost a full run. The instructors don't need to tell you anything. You're supposed to be given a mission and execute. Uh, you should be doing this for long enough at that point. So everyone's at least been there for 63 days. And how long did it take you to get through all the three phases? Uh, when I completed it, it took me six months. Uh, I had done Hell Week, went straight through. I did the first phase or Derby phase straight through. I recycled mountains uh, because on the last day, uh, the last mission, we were on an ambush line and we had been waiting for an hour or two and had a much longer time to wait uh, until we had were able to achieve our objective, just waiting for them to come across and, and execute the ambush. I had fallen asleep and in my dreams while sleeping, I'm carrying an M4 and I see four what I think are Chinese armed men in BDUs and AK-47s come across the ambush line. And when that happens, there's a certain point at what the platoon leader's job is to initiate the ambush. And I hear in my head, which didn't actually happen, him initiate with his M4. So while sleeping, I went from safe to fire on my weapon and fired it. Uh, these are blank rounds, so no one's in danger. Um, this is completely not what's supposed to happen. It's a big issue. I had to go to a board for it and tell them why I essentially had a negligent discharge of my weapon. When I fired a weapon, because of the shock of the uh, buffer spring coming back and hitting me, I woke up to quickly realize that there were not four Chinese men in BDUs with AK-47s, that there was nothing and I had fallen asleep. So I recycled that, then I had a one day of rest, and then the next day started the next phase, or the restart for the next phase that was behind us, or the next class, I should say. And I went through mountains again, and then I did Florida phase twice uh, because I had gotten a, what's called cellulitis or an staph infection in my knee. I noticed it, an issue with my uh, knee that morning on the fourth day of the 10 day exercise. And by the end of the operation, I couldn't move my knee anymore. Uh, the swelling of the inflammation had gone so bad. Uh, I was moved into a hospital. I spent a week getting operated on. So your completion of ranger school was delayed once because you made a mistake and once because something just happened to you physically that mm -hmm. you had to recover from. If people haven't checked out the series uh, that's out there called Surviving the Cut, you can get a pretty good idea of, of uh, what uh, Lieutenant D'Angelo is talking about as far as what ranger school looks like. What did you take away from ranger school once you got all the way through and finally passed? What I then learned was how far I could push myself. What I could do to push myself under the harshest conditions. And then what it really takes to motivate people isn't the hard charger, I'm authoritative, I need to be the one in charge, you have to listen to me. It's learning what triggers motivate people. When we would talk about food while on an ambush line, that was the only thing that would keep my soldiers awake. Just learning those little fine points of what can I poke that's gonna get someone to work for me. For me, not, not because I want, I'm going to force them to do it, not because I'm in charge, how can I make them work for me because they want to yeah and that's a good point talking about peer evaluations because mm -hmm. I know that isn't it at the end of the school each phase each phase of the school okay so tell the audience what peer evaluations are and how they play a role in someone's success or failure 
So a normal squad ranges from 10 to about 20 personnel, depending on how many people have not made it to that phase. What that works is, is you rank each person, each peer from one to 18 or 20, whatever the bottom is. And you have to tell the instructors why they deserve that position. And usually the first, the top guy and the bottom guy are easy. But what makes this a real context for it is that I've had 15 to 20 days to learn who my squad mates are. And each phase you get 10 days of training and 10 days of execution. And you have to make a determination of who's the best and who's the worst and who's just, you know, a good guy and why. And it's usually the, the first person's easy, the last person's usually easy, but it's based off of one or two instances of where they were either in charge or why they were being told what to do or so, as a subordinate, why they were no good and why you don't want to work with them. And sometimes you quantify that with saying, I wouldn't be in a foxhole with you. I don't trust you to protect me. And as I understand it, the instructors take the peer evaluations pretty seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, they take those grades uh, and a commander will review that, what everyone has said about that individual. And I don't know if it's a percentage based or if it's a numbers based on how they bring everybody in. Um, but those who have met that mark, they will have a discussion with that commander and that commander will read verbatim what everyone said about them. Uh, I wrote down that I would not sit in a foxhole with one person because he quit on his own mission that he was leading. He was a squad leader and uh, he just gave up because of the stress of leading that mission and didn't know what was going on to the point where the instructor took it over and walked us back. If that gentleman was to, and I told him this um, the, the same day, was if you were to quit on your own mission, quit on your own your own, when your job's on the line right now, what's gonna happen when it's a rough day for me and I've gotta take you up mountains and you're carrying the, 200, the 240 and 100 pounds on your back and I need you to carry that because it's your day. Are you gonna quit on me then? Yeah, so I think that is an interesting component of Ranger School and some of the other military schools that are out there. Peer evaluations do have some sway in how the leaders of those schools view their candidates and then also it, it could cause someone to uh, it could confirm their leadership abilities uh, that they have a good name or it could also cause them to get voted off the island if you will. So after ranger school you survived the cut so to speak. Was there a time either back in your unit or on a deployment where what you did and what you learned came into play? So I come up to Fort Wainwright I spend six weeks here and I go off and deploy. Uh, my counterpart, the guy I was replacing, uh, I saw him for an hour before I actually made it to the final destination in Iraq. And so I didn't have much time to learn from him what was going on and what the situation was. And I make it to the uh, new unit and I get briefed on the situation and we, are, they're walking me through. Here's where the aid station is. This is who we're working with. Um, this is the setup. It's a warehouse. And we have this SOP of like, hey, we're going to take cover in this office that's protected by sandbags. And I look and the sandbags are three to four feet high, double stacked. So good from any enemy fire, a direct fire, I should say. Um, but I'm looking above and I don't see anything above us. It's just a warehouse with a small office. There's not great protection overhead. 
I'm like, oh, I'm new. I'll, I'll get to that. Uh, the threat proof that I got wasn't anything large. Should be fine. Um, but I'll address that in a week or two. And then 12 days later, we took 32 rockets. So I'm laying in that office, looking at my platoon as these rockets are coming all around us. I immediately look at my platoon sergeant. I'm telling uh, him to give me an accountability. I'm looking at all the faces who've never experienced combat before, and they're all looking at me wide-eyed and scared. And so immediately I took that action of, hey, look, guys, I need you to do your job. That's all we got to do here. It's over. I don't know if the next one's going to happen, but you've trained for this. Go execute your job. Don't worry about anything else. Let's go. And they all got up and they all moved. And then we just went through it. And that was that ranger school helped me in that aspect because of all the stress that I had been on before and the principles of that leadership and the infantry uh, tactics taught me the first thing you do when you take contact is you get accountability. And then you look at the situation and go, what's next? And that's what I took away from ranger school. And you had said that because you were new, you maybe weren't as assertive about the level of or the type of protection around your area so it sounds like they were set up for direct fire which would mean you know, coming from a rifle rifles guns that sort of thing but what we call indirect fire which could be coming in on top of you there wasn't any protection it wasn't good protection it wasn't good protection it, it, there there were some beams uh, that could if a perfect shot happened a rocket would hit a beam and move out but there was not nearly what should have been there and you're right that was I should have been more assertive um, that is a failure on my part of trying to read the room when I should have known no this is a big enough problem I need to stop that right now so I like to say there's no such thing as failure only feedback mm -hmm. so <laughs> what what did you take away from that that's exactly what I took back was uh that I need to make sure that if there's a dire enough situation or if it's detrimental to the life of the soldier I will make that correction from now on. That should have been what I had said at that point. Was, no, we're not going to sit here in a bunker. We're going to either better our defense against the potential threats that we have, or we're going to change the location that finds us a better uh, defense. Yeah, and so that's a good takeaway for the audience to be willing to be assertive, even if you're the new kid on the block, because there are times when that's necessary no, I appreciate your time uh, today, kind of giving us uh, an overview of your career and uh, what Ranger School looks like, and then also some application for what you learned there. Last question before we wrap it up. Uh, what's something, as you look back over the course of your years in the Army, what is something that you find fulfilling about your time in the uniform? The biggest thing that I take away is that phone call from a soldier years gone by with a thank you. Thank you for the way that you led or thank you for what you helped me achieve um, because I am better off for it. Getting those phone calls from your class in the past are some of the biggest drives that I'm doing the, or biggest affirmations that I'm doing the right thing. That my leadership style is correct um, and that I'm not ruining people's either military career or personal lifestyles. Um, and that's my biggest takeaway is, is getting those feedbacks. And as we know in the Army, uh, people are our first priority, number one priority, and uh, I think that's very fitting that that's what you find fulfilling. Uh, not, not all the accomplishments, I mean, people can't see your uniform, but you're well decorated, uh, but it really is about people, and uh, that's why we come to work every day. 
So thanks for your time, uh, Terry. I appreciate it. And um, I know a lot of people will find this episode uh, insightful. I appreciate it. It was fun. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of Soldier Stories. I do hope you will subscribe and leave a rating on your podcast platform. You can also check out armychap.com to see the content and pictures I post there. For God and Country, Chaplain Wright, signing off for now.